0: Welcome to episode 86 of Pubcrawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host S.J. Jones, called JJ. I'm a New York Times bestselling author and erstwhile editor, and I'm your co-host Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. So today we are going to answer some of the questions that came in during our extended hiatus. So this is a little bit of a Q&A uh, and a little bit of a mea culpa, um, and to get to your questions, some of which are like nearly a year old now. Sorry! <laughs> <laughs> hopefully
1: they'll still be relevant and if they are not helpful for the asker then they will be
0: helpful for someone else who's listening now <laughs> <laughs> so uh just to let you guys know and to reiterate we do have a, a suggestion box on our patreon for questions so for our patrons to ask us if we want if they want us to cover a topic we also have the hashtag AskPubCrawl on Twitter, and we do have a Tumblr as well as the email. So you can go ahead and send in your questions, uh, whatever way is the easiest for you, and we'll try and get to them. I figure um, this is probably more of a roundup, uh, but we'll try and answer the questions as they come in. But mm. uh, So I will start with this one. This is from Amber, and sorry, Amber, that this is like nearly a year late. Uh but so she asks Hello ladies, I was wondering what, what do you do if you have two story ideas with similar concepts? Two of the stories I'm working on, one fantasy, one fiction, deals with gods and goddesses, and even though I'm excited by both and they have different plots, I feel pressured to choose one over the other because of the similarities. For Kelly, from the perspective of an agent slash editor, how do you choose which author to work with if several send you books with similar concepts or themes? And for JJ, from the viewpoint of an author, how do you choose which project to pursue if you have several story ideas that are similar? Thank you. Interesting. All right. So why don't you start, Kelly? How do you choose authors uh, either to represent or work with if If they come into your inbox and the concepts are similar, yeah,
1: I will say that you know I read thousands and thousands of queries and to a certain extent you're gonna see the same things over and over again and sometimes those are similar themes you know a lot of themes in y a. Um, are really prevalent ac- across multiple, multiple stories. So there's, you know, themes of oppression or themes of identity or, you know, whatever they may be. Those themes happen in across lots of different stories. And then sometimes there are more specific details like, you know, vampire stories. If I have a story with vampires in it, am I going to look at another one or so on and so forth? Um, and I think that really there's a couple of things. In terms of themes thematically, you know, I'm not going to be like, oh, I already have a story that deals with oppression, so I'm not going to take this story that deals with oppression. Um, I think it's about the way that your individual story takes those themes and explores them and what you have to say about those things. Um, that's, and that's always going to be unique to your story. And as for other things, I have actually, I have never turned down a query because I already have something too similar. I'm sure that someday that will happen. Uh, I know that that does happen sometimes for editors. Um, JJ and I have talked on this podcast before about how sometimes there's like a cultural zeitgeist that seems to happen mm-hmm. and somehow without necessarily copying one another or stealing ideas or anything, but people will will just by virtue of osmosis and breathing the same collective air, um, will come up with similar story ideas. And so sometimes you will get things that, you know, a bunch of people will submit a similar type of story at the same time. And at that point, especially on the editor side of things, um, you know, the house doesn't want to have competitive titles within its imprints. So they're going to pick one and, and go with it. Sometimes it's a matter of which one comes to you first. Um, but if I have two things in front of me that arrive at the same time that are remarkably similar, honestly, the answer is going to come down to that, the the one that speaks to me the most, the one that I click with, that I... Fall in love with, you know, which I know is such a frustrating answer for writers because you can't make that happen, right? <laughs> like, like, that's not something that you can engineer and I can't give you the secret formula to make sure that yours is always going to be picked in those circumstances because it's going to be unique. And the things, you know, if the, the story that I would pick if I had two in front of me are, aren't necessarily the same as ones that my colleagues would pick or that other agents would pick, you know, out of those same two stories, they might choose the other. So from an agenting perspective, you know, part of it's timing, part of it's luck. The thing that I see first that I fall in love with first You know, I'm going to commit to that because I saw it first. Um, But it really is just about that, that alchemy, that having that indescribable thing that makes me feel, yes, I'm in love with this. Yes, I think there's a readership for this. Yes, I think it can sell it. Yes, I think this book deserves to be on shelves. It's like just yes to every question down the line that's going to make me want to offer on that. I know that's not a real answer because I know you can't do anything with that. (laughs) But that's kind of the truth.
0: Yeah, I think when I was an editor, the thing about when you find something that is similar to something that you already have or two things with very similar premises, and the degree of similarity does matter here. Mm -hmm. Because, for example, if I got in a book that, is about a secret princess reclaiming her kingdom. And then I get another book that is also about a secret princess reclaiming her kingdom. Even if the specific details are different, the premises are too similar for me to necessarily consider buying both of them. There are Some exceptions to this, for example, if it's a secret princess and it's like a European-based fantasy and then I get one that's like an African fantasy, those are different perhaps enough in tone and setting that I might be able to overlook the fact that the premise is very, very similar. Mm -hmm. But it really does depend. I mean, and there are, like Kelly and I had said before, there's something sometimes weirdly in a cultural zeitgeist that people seem to hit upon similar premises and that's no one's fault. That's just the way things are. Um, but that as far as the publishing side, that's kind of what we talk about when we think, when we say things are too similar, when we're like the, it's basically the same premise, right? Like if it's the same premise, it's essentially the same story. It's (laughs) a little bit like (laughs) weirdly, um, in the late 90s, there were two very big asteroid movies, Armageddon and Deep Impact. <laughs> um, and premise-wise, they're actually not really the same, um, but shorthand, when people talked about the asteroid movie, you know, you weren't always sure which asteroid movie they were talking about, although, let's be honest, they were probably talking about Armageddon, Armageddon. because Armageddon was a huge movie. Yeah. Um, but you know that that's the reason people avoid having mm-hmm. things that are too similar on their right. list.
1: Yeah, because you have to think about it. You know the the sales and marketing team is has certain tools at their disposal, and like you know the premise that basic distillation of the core of what the story is. That's going to be everywhere. That's going to be on your jacket copy. That's going to be in your deal announcement. That's going to be the way that people pitch and and speak about your book because it's that that most distilled essential kernel of what your story is. We're not going to have time to get into all the details. You know that's why you read the book <laughs> so that you get all the details of this story. So you know having a, a premise that is that similar does pose a problem because the sales and marketing team can't push both books with the same marketing strategies or languages or, you know, they're not going to be able to make them stand out enough. It's already going to be hard enough to make it stand out from the other publisher's secret princess book, you know, let alone having two secret princess books within the same publishing house. So I feel like on the editorial side of things, that does make a difference. Certainly as an agent, certainly as agents get, you know, have larger client lists and are working with more and more projects that will become an issue. And it really is just kind of a combination of timing and being, and having that spark that, that makes people fall in love, that makes you stand out. And, and that is indefinable. Um, you know, so I think in the questioner's you know, the, the purpose of the question is that this person is working on, has multiple ideas and wants to find the one to focus on. And JJ, maybe, you know, you can speak to how do you determine which story you commit
0: yourself to? Well, I guess it depends on how similar the ideas are, because I think the longer you write, the, the more like the more you see the same tropes and motifs appear in your work right um it's often because you know at our core we're generally trying to work through specific ideas or or narratives or whatever so the degree of similarity does matter and in this particular example uh the, the asker said that the both books had gods and goddesses. That in itself is not, does not necessarily say to me that these books are that similar. Right. Just that they happen to have an element in common. Now, if the premise is the same or very similar across both books, as in like the protagonist is trying to, I don't know, defeat the gods. I, I'm not quite sure, but you know, there's something like that. Like if the basic premise and therefore the basic story is similar in that regard, um, that would be a different story. And as far as picking which one, I don't know. It it is interesting because, personally, I don't really have a lot of ideas that are that similar to each other in terms of premises. Um, So, But if I had two that were the same or very close i would actually wonder if there wasn't a way to combine them i was just going to say that there are because you know and i've talked about this before um that for me writing is kind of three things there's a plot a premise and character and for me i always have a premise and a character and the plot comes later For some people, it is the premise and the plot. Some people have the character and the plot, but not necessarily the premise. So you kind of need two of the three. And a lot of the times, a lot of my stories that I have not written full novels for are missing one of, or are only one of those three. And so and then I find out later that maybe I'm actually I should actually combine some elements from all the various different Ideas I have to kind of have a much more cohesive narrative, um, and that can take time, you know, and kind of noodling, and maybe you write some very bad drafts before you realize that oh, that wasn't maybe the thing, um, you know. For I'll 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 throw out a couple of different ideas that I have had. Uh, there is one uh, that I wrote. Called that I had shorthanded Jane Eyre with werewolves because I am very very bad at titles, um, and I called it Jane Eyre with werewolves because it was exploring a lot of it was a similar idea to Jane Eyre. It was kind of a retelling of Jane Eyre, but instead of a secret wife in the attic, he was a werewolf. <laughs> um, and ultimately, I'm not sure if I'll return to that story because it is actually somewhat similar in narrative to Winter Song in um, in in mood and in feel and a lot of those things so uh, I picked Winter Song because that story actually came to me a lot more fully developed it just sort of arrived and therefore I wrote it um, I know that doesn't always happen so I think you pick the one that feels the most complete to you even if you like both ideas I think you may have a sense that one may be a little bit more baked than the other Or if they are very similar, then maybe you can find ways to combine the different elements into one book. So that's kind of really my advice. Mm. But yeah, my my premises are not really all that alike. So I think that's it, unless we have anything else to say, Kelly? No, I think that covers it. All right, cool. Do you want to read the next question? Yes, let me find it. Okay. This
1: question is from Savannah who writes, uh, Ms. J. Jones. I am a 16 year old girl who has read both Winter Song and Shadow Song and I loved them. The story of Elizabeth is a great one. It's been my dream to become an author. And I have a few questions. How do you deal with rejection? This problem has prohibited me from doing so many things. How do you know when your story is ready? And finally, how do you find the right publishing company? Thank you for reading this. I hope to hear from you in the future. It is Aww. the future. Sorry to keep you waiting so long. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely in the future now.
0: <laughs> yes. Um, well, thank you for your kind words about uh, winter song and shadow song. So the first question is, how do you deal with rejection? Um, and this is actually something that I have thought about uh, mostly because I think I might be slightly unusual and that I don't really care about rejection. <laughs> but let me also say, I'm I'm not 16, right? Mm. I'm much older than that. I've had a lot of time to come to terms with the concept of rejection. Um, and I have been rejected many, many times in my life. And this isn't to say it doesn't sting each time, but you have, you develop emotional tools to deal with it better the older you get. Um, So there is that aspect. But as far as how to deal with rejection, it's, this is a little bit hard for me, I guess, only because I tend to not take rejection personally. And that's something a lot of people, can say as advice, but it's hard to necessarily put into practice. And ultimately a rejection, if if it's a rejection of your story, it's a rejection just of the story. It is not a reflection or a rejection of you as a person, as an artist. It's simply most of the time rejections are a matter of timing particularly in publishing. Often it is simply right book, right time that gets through. So understanding that it's not a problem with you, that is simply not the right book at the right time is, I think, an easier way to wrap your mind around the concept that you're not necessarily getting what you want. And also, you know, I'm not trying to sound condescending but you know you have time you know 16 is not old by any means you have a lot of years ahead of you to improve your craft to work on the stories that you love to get better and better and better and you know even if you do continue to continue to get rejected someday those rejections will turn into yeses. So even if it doesn't happen right away or as soon as you would like, that's okay. Um, and I understand that patience is not necessarily something that is easy to to acquire either, but <laughs> um, that's kind of my advice on the rejection piece. What about you, Kelly? Yeah, I would agree. I am
1: different from you in that I am someone who does take things personally even when i know that i shouldn't i have worked in this industry for so many years i know it's not personal i know for a fact that it isn't about me and yet <laughs> i got a lot of rejection last year i had um You know, my clients that we were out on submission, you know, getting rejected. And of course, that I'm sure is more complicated and difficult and emotional for them than it is for me. But it still is rejection of me, too. These are the editors that I thought would be a good fit, and it's not for whatever reason. So there's that type of rejection for agents. And the biggest form of rejection I faced last year is that I offered representation to 10 clients and all, or 10 potential clients and all 10 of them signed with someone else, um, which was really hard. It was my biggest failure of the year, uh, last year and hurt a lot. And some of them hurt more than others. Some of them, I was kind of able to like, you know, be like, okay, that stung, but you know, it's business. It's not personal. And I could kind of dust myself off and, um, and keep going. And then there were some that I I was truly distraught. I was devastated. Um, and it's hard. It's hard. And I think what helped me on the one hand was practice. You know, the more you get rejected, <laughs> truly, the more you it get rejected, true. the more... Exposure therapy. <laughs> you, yeah. The more capable you are of dealing with it. Um, and also... I think for me, because I am a person who does tend to take things personally, personally initially, um, what helped for me was to give myself a set amount of time to essentially grieve. Um, and for some rejections, it was 20 minutes. And for some rejections, it was like a week. (laughs) But I would, I would give myself a set of time. I, I would, uh, you know, kind of ask myself, honestly, how long is it going to take me to really feel the sadness that I'm feeling and and be ready to move on? And in some cases, you know, it was 20 minutes and I would get the email saying, thank you so much for your kind words, but I've chosen to go with someone else. And I would kind of take a deep breath and I would close my email and I would get up and I would like take a walk around my block. And, you know, I'd spend 10 minutes outside walking around the block. And by the time I got back, I felt ready you know, to, to move on and do some work. Sometimes (laughs) I would get that email and then I would close my computer and I would burst into tears. And I would text my husband to bring me home ice cream on his way home from the office. And I would cry and cry. And I would say that I was never going to fall in love with a book ever again. And it was going to be horrible. (laughs) This is true. These happened to me. And, uh, or I did these things, um, you know, and, and for me, it was important to feel those things because trying not to feel them just made it worse. Uh so for me I kind of told myself, okay, feel it, you know, grieve, be sad. Um but but no and remind myself constantly that it feels personal but it isn't. It isn't. And once I was able to feel that sadness or or have that kind of grieving process, I could believe when I told myself it's not personal, you know, I'd had that, that emotional reaction and I got through it and then I was ready to get back to work. And so I think if you, you know, it depends on the kind of person you are. It depends on how you process things. Um, And I think that, you know, that uh, truly like the more you put yourself out there, yes, the more you'll get rejected, but also, you know, more opportunities will come to you and you'll have more chances and you'll work those muscles. Like you need to develop, That, because rejection doesn't stop when you get an agent. You know, you keep getting rejected from editors. You keep getting rejected. And then, and then, you know, you get a book deal and you get rejected for awards or you get rejected by the consumers or you get, you know, it just like, it just keeps coming. So any notion of telling yourself that at a certain level of success, rejections will no longer happen to you is just false. It will always happen at some level in some way. People will find new ways to reject you. (laughs) And so the truly the thing is, I think to just find a way to work through it and to not let that fear of rejection um, stop you. You know, I think one of the best things that we can tell people who want to get into this business is to expect it, expect rejection because it happens to all of us at some level, somehow, some way. And process it, deal with it, you know, however you have to, and don't let it stop you from moving forward.
0: Yeah. If fear of rejection is preventing you from doing the things that you love, um, then I agree with Kelly, just embrace it embrace it as an inevitability and it does help. Um, and this is one of my, this was one of my favorite books growing up and uh, it's, uh, Mayo by Brian Jakes. And, um, one of the lines, and I don't know why this piece of philosophy in a book about talking animals has stuck with me for so many years. Um, but one of the characters, and these are the young children of the main characters of the previous book, um, are kind of host, basically taken hostage and they're trying to cheer each other up. And one of them says, um, expect the worst, but hope for the best, <laughs> And I still think that's a pretty good piece of advice. You expect the worst but hope for the best. Um and the other thing is like I feel a lot of a lot of people writers in particular and a lot of artistic types don't want to fail or they don't want to do something and not be good at it already so they just don't start. <laughs> um I know a lot of people who are like this and I think removing judgment from yourself also helps that and this is I'm also going to bring Avatar the Last Airbender into this. This is an episode that Kelly and I had talked about with our friend Mike on our other podcast. Um and it was actually about the concept of letting go of desire. This was this is in like the guru episode where Aang is trying to unlock all of his chakras. But and and I remember Kelly, you were like, I don't understand what you know, like letting go of his feelings for Katara, what does that mean? And I was like, it's not necessarily letting go of the fact that he has feelings for Katara. It's letting go of the expectation that his feelings for Katara will lead to anything else. And therein lies the difference. Um it is this Buddhist idea of impermanence or letting it go, or that it is kind of this idea that it, you know, there is want, um, but you must let go of the expectation that you will get it. And that in itself will bring peace. And maybe that is why I don't take rejection very personally. That is how I approach a lot of things in life that I do want things, but if they don't happen, it's because I have already let go of expectation. And so don't judge yourself too harshly. I think that's the other thing, too, is like we're a lot of us judge ourselves because we aren't what we want to be. Um, But so, yeah, if if fear of rejection is stopping you, don't, you know, you you will never get anywhere if you don't try. Right. Like you're never going to get somewhere if you don't try. So you might as well try. Uh, So, yeah, expect the worst. Hope for the best. Um, so the other question was, how do you know when your story is ready? <laughs> I
1: feel like we've talked about this before and I don't know that we came up with a satisfying answer then either.
0: Yeah. Uh, I just, no. <laughs> Yeah. I know that's horrible, but it honestly, a lot of that comes with practice as well. Yeah. A lot of it comes with practice. The more you write, the more you know. And there is no better teacher than experience and time. So, Mm -hmm. when do I know a story is ready? I know when the pieces are in place, and I know when the arcs are in place. I know when the story is complete. Uh, emotional journeys are complete. Small things might need work. You know, characterization might need to be finessed. Some plot things might need to be tweaked. But essentially, the bones of the story are there. That's when I know a story is essentially ready. Um, And that's kind of... That's really the only answer I can give. I think that's true. And I think,
1: you know... And I I do think that most people... Do know that. I think there are some writers who don't want to be done. And so will tinker and polish and go over every word and, you know, will insist that there's always more to do. But that's – I think they know. I think in their mind that's them stalling,
0: you know. Yeah, it's like a security blanket that they're just holding on because it makes them feel better.
1: Yeah, I think really and truly I think – that when it's ready, you will know. Most people will know. And I do think that, JJ, that you're right, that the more that you write, the more stories that you finish, the closer that you'll get to that sense of certainty of when something is ready.
0: Yeah, I <laughs> I know it's not a very specific or helpful answer, but honestly, you just keep doing it until you know. Um. So then the last one is, how do you find the right publishing company? Uh, well, you get an agent. <laughs> um, this is also an interesting question because it's not necessarily entirely up to an author mm-hmm. because being published traditionally is a partnership. So it is also the publisher trying to find the right author and story for themselves. And so it's like, how do you find a, how do you find a significant other? Yeah. You just put it out there and you look around and you see if things fit. And if you, you see if you work well together or if you like hanging out and, if you have similar goals in life, like it is, and you know, it's a very tired metaphor to talk about publishing as a relationship, but it, it is still kind of the most useful metaphor, honestly. Um, you know, and, and sometimes it, it doesn't work out to be honest. I, I know, and I have several author friends who's relationship with their publisher just wasn't right for them ultimately in the end. And it wasn't, Anyone's fault it's just a mismatch of those things, whether or not the goals are the same or the chemistry's off or whatever um how do you know if someone is the right person for you? you just kind of have to take a chance and see mm-hmm. so sorry it's this well, this answer is kind of light on the specific concrete practical advice, but it's a lot of gut feeling <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> trust your gut trust your gut it's a lot of that's not <sighs> a bad piece of advice. Alright, so the next question um is an aspiring literary agent question from Tonica Reed. It says Hi I am an aspiring writer slash editor slash literary agent. I have a client whom I've done editorial work for who is looking to publish a children's book series, and I am wondering if there are any resources you guys have that can help me coach her through this process. She trusts me to help her, but I'm not really sure where to start other than writing-wise. Thanks. Uh, So this is really more of a question for Kali, I think.
1: Yes. So a couple of things Um, for aspiring... Literary agents, you know, this kind of goes back to that question, like, how do you become a literary agent? And there is no school, there's no degree, there's no course, there's nothing that you, you know, need to do. There's no credentials to become a literary agent. You can just kind of say that you are one and set up an email address and tell people to start querying you, which can be scary, um, both for the person who is trying to become a literary agent and also for the writers who are trying to secure representation. And the reason that it's scary is um, because there is no formal process, there's no training or, you know, degree or course of study um, to learn this aspect of this business, in a way, it's great because anyone can do it, but then also anyone can do it. And starting from scratch with nothing and no sense of what you're doing is going to be really hard. And I don't recommend it. I think literary agencies or becoming a literary agent is really kind of a mentorship type of job you need someone there to kind of teach you how to do it you know you can learn general pieces like if you already know how to edit that's great editing is a big part of agenting networking is a big part of agenting so you need to meet editors you need to introduce yourself you need to build relationships with people you need to figure out how to pitch something that's something that i you know, learned a lot in my first year was I was like, I'm really good at editing and I know how to network and I know this business. I know how to do contracts. And then I was like, Oh, how do I pitch stuff? (laughs) (laughs) How does that work? And I had to kind of figure that out. And I had mentors who helped me because I was at an agency that I had colleagues that I could show my pitches to and say, Hey, here's this pitch. What do you guys think? And they would help me refine it. Um, (sighs) And so I think in terms of resources, you know, your best bet is to try to find a mentor, either by interning or by joining an agency and having someone mentor you directly. Um, I find it hard to believe, and I'm sure that there are people out there who've done it, so... You know, it is what it is, but I I find it hard to believe that a person can, with no experience in the industry whatsoever, can make it on their own and, and make a living out of it. You know, if you were an editor and you're transitioning, then you've got that background of being an editor. You know how the industry works. You've got editorial connections. That's something to go on. You know, there, there are ways that people come into this industry. I know a lot of booksellers who became agents. You know, if you've got some kind of a background, a leg to stand on, then you can kind of put all the pieces together. But if you're just like, this is something I want to do, get a mentor, have somebody help you, have someone guide you. Because things like contracts, like that first time that you get a contract in front of you, You need to understand what it says. You need to be able to tell your clients what it says. You need to be able to advise them whether or not they should sign it and what needs to change. You know, you have a larger responsibility than than just liking books and wanting to help books get published. You know, I think a lot of times we simplify what literary agents do and kind of think of them as like, oh... You know, the person who takes an editor to lunch and has two martinis and, you know, gets you a book deal and then that's it. And it's like, it's a much more difficult job. Um, and your, you, your agent needs to know what they're doing. You know, contracts, they have to be able to read royalty statements. You have to be able to, you know, understand foreign rights and sub rights and all of these different pieces of things, you know.
0: And if they don't have somebody, and if they don't know, then hopefully they have somebody else in the industry who does know that they can rely on as a source of information. As, when I was an editor, it, I rarely took unsolicited submissions from authors, um, and I also will admit to Googling agents I have never heard of. Now, granted, there are a lot of agents I hadn't heard of. You know, it's a big business. There are a lot of people in it. I hadn't met everybody. So if I hadn't heard of an agent, I was going to do a little bit of research about their agency, what else that they've sold, who they've worked for, what other credentials, or what else could possibly vouch for their taste. Um... So a lot of agents in this business generally come up through internship or from other segments of publishing, as Kelly had said, because really it's a agent being an agent is basically being in a position of, well, you really have to establish trust. And that's kind of hard to do if you're completely new on the scene and there's no one to vouch for you. Mm -hmm. And that form of being vouched for comes from either having interned somewhere or having worked as a bookseller or some, there's something that has to vouch for your, your experience or your knowledge or, you know, all, all those sorts of things. So if I hadn't heard from an agent and I got a submission, I was going to look up the agency. And if I saw that they had not sold anything before, that in itself is not necessarily disqualifying if they've just started up a new agency or they, whatever, whatever, um, because if they are a newer agent and they've started their own agency, I'm going to look to see where else that they have worked so I know that I can trust them. Because there are mm-hmm. a lot of people who sort of show up, who used to show up in my inbox and be like, I'm an agent, here's this book. And I kind of look and be like, do you know what this business is? And a lot of them, weirdly, were lawyers and then not even entertainment lawyers. So, And also... Publishing contracts in itself are so very different from a regular legal contract, so it's oh not- my God, yes, <laughs> and what part of the thing an agent does for you is know what can what you can give on and what you can kind of push on. The agent knows what's industry standard the agent because that's not going to be in the boilerplate. the agent's <laughs> going to know there's so many things that you know from having worked for somebody, if you've had a mentor in the business, you just kind of, you know these things. So my biggest piece of advice is to, to involve yourself in the publishing community in some form or another. Often it is easy, uh, not easy, it, um, but you know, talking to booksellers, you know, talking to, if you have access to a conference and the funds to go you can go and, and network with other people there. Um, you know, there are a lot of people. I When I go to conferences and things like that, I meet a lot of readers, yes, but I also meet a lot of people who want to enter the publishing industry. And it's a very good place because even if you don't necessarily meet somebody who can mentor you, you can meet other people who are in a similar position as you are, and you guys can form your own community of support. Um, so I definitely would say to to start is to really actively get yourself involved. Yeah. All right. So next question, Kelly? Next question.
1: This is from Wayne, who says, Greetings, Pub Crawl. Found your website the other day. First, I must say, I'm impressed with the work you all have done to help aspiring writers. Please keep up the good work. I'm a retired married man turning 74 next week, been writing short nonfiction stories off and on for eight years, some success with publishing business articles, no better feeling of validation than a big fat check in the mail. This gave me confidence to expand my knowledge and study the writing process, read numerous books on writing, writing websites and magazines to learn more, started my new writing efforts with a personal memoir, then on try to fiction novels. Spent about a year or so working on second and third drafts, revisions, editing, and a few beta readers to help me on all three works. I am ready to go forward to seek publication. My question to you is, because of my advanced age, will this just about kill my chances of any agent or publisher to even consider my query? Thank you in advance for your thoughts or feedback. No. Oh, no. Mm-mm. No. <laughs> age ain't nothing but a number. Um, yes. No, there is, there is no um I, honestly in the beginning age won't really even come up unless you mention it usually when you sign an off, offer author agreement or when you um Sometimes sign a publishing agreement, they will ask for your birth date, and usually that's to make sure that you're of legal age to be able to sign a legal document. So usually you have to be over 18, and if not, then you might have to have a parent or guardian uh, guarantee your signature and, and your obligations in the contract. Um, but no, age is not. If, if you have access to a computer and understand how to use the internet and how to use Word, then you're great.
0: Yeah, honestly, as long as you can write a good story that people want to read, your age doesn't matter. I, I don't I think uh, granted our I think our perception of the publishing industry is skewed because the mo- the people who are the most visible online are on the younger end, but there are a lot of older authors out there. Um, and many I have of them, debut authors that are a older. lot of older debut authors. It it doesn't. It truly does not matter your age. Uh, honestly, it really doesn't. There are no real concerns about health, anything like that. I mean, as long as you're able to write a book and deliver it, that's really all that matters. Regardless of how old you are, young or old. Um, so I wouldn't worry about it. Um, there are things about being younger that you can do. You can travel a lot more, and you can do a lot more appearances. But, you know, you're, if you're a very healthy 74-year-old, there's nothing stopping you from doing that either. So, um, no, there's it, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so next question.
1: So this uh, next one, I don't know if we would read this. But I do think there's an interesting question at the heart of it. Essentially, this email is about um, a book, a popular book that has gotten a lot of good, you know, reviews and acclaim and feedback. And this writer did not enjoy the book and wants to know about that disconnect, about, you know, this person feels that it wasn't well-written or that it didn't have any literary merit, you know, more beyond just a, this wasn't my taste. This person is arguing that this book actually isn't deserving of the critical attention that it's gotten and wants to know why. And I do think that there is, we're not going to name the book and we're not going to read the email. Um, We do not uh, dissect current fiction in that way on this podcast, uh, Harry Potter aside. Um, (laughs) and so we're not going to get into details about this particular book or the merits of this particular book, but I do think there's something interesting at the heart of this, which is, um, seeing a book that is getting all this recognition or getting, you know, attention that you feel, wasn't that good and trying to understand why. And from a publishing perspective, I think it's interesting. And I will say that there are plenty of books that people rave about that. I'm just like, I don't get
0: it. Yep. same. (laughs) Tons and tons that like this author that I was like, I don't think it's that well written yet. And here's, here's the honest truth is that whether or not something is quote good writing doesn't actually matter it's whether or not you can hold the attention of the reader Mm -hmm. and that is all that matters yeah um not to shit on dan brown
1: no i was just gonna bring him up because we've used him before
0: (laughs) um sorry dan brown but dan Brown isn't doesn't care; he is not worried. I promise you no, he he's he's like Scrooge McDuck, I'm sure swimming in his pool of money. But what I'm saying is that Dan Brown's books from a writing standpoint from a craft standpoint, are not exactly exemplary works of fiction um and yet, I have read almost all of his books. I couldn't put them down. I find them highly entertaining, so I know on you know. On an intellectual level, perhaps that it's not a very good book at the same time I read the whole thing and I was I was entertained and amused on on the flip side there are other books that I have read that are technically very good that I have had absolutely no connection to but I know <laughs> on a technical level that this is a good book mm-hmm. so really honest honestly I will say this whether or not a book is quote, good or bad by whatever objective measure you, you want to mm-hmm. put upon it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, and crit- whether or not something has critical acclaim is as much a cultural consensus as anything else. Uh, one of my fa- this was actually something that had been happening on Twitter, was somebody said, what's your favorite movie that is certified rotten on Rotten Tomatoes? <laughs> <laughs> and they had used a gif from A Knight's Tale, which I love. I love so that movie. It's, it's great, even though it's not technically good. Um, even though I would argue that it is technically good. But anyway, regardless, the critical consensus on that movie was that it wasn't good at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, the, so it, it's just that. It's a uh, criticism, literary criticism is almost like anything else, it's sort of a club
1: of mm-hmm. people.
0: And, um, people tend to come to a consensus. It's just, it's, you know, like people who vote at the Academy for the Oscars, people Mm -hmm. come to a consensus, um, because someone else thought it was good and they've been able to persuade you that it is, or, you know, whatever. And I also want to say, too, that especially in terms of
1: literary fiction, you know, it's easy to point to things like Dan Brown and say, like, well, it's not well written, but it's it's pulpy, it's engaging, I'm going to turn the pages because it's thrilling. Um, and I think sometimes with literary fiction, too, something that we don't often examine is that um, we have a literary canon, quote unquote, that is largely written by dead white men. And that our ideas of what is literary or what is good literature is shaped by those books that we read in school that are by white men and predominantly always have been by white men. And that I think that that's such a narrow definition of what, like, proper or appropriate or successful literary fiction should look like. And that things that fall outside of that viewpoint are often met with backlash because they look or read different. This is that whole thing with like women's fiction as like a genre, like so many books that are labeled quote unquote literary fiction are just, or labeled quote unquote women's fiction are just like, it's just literary fiction. Like, it's just, it's like, it's like literary fiction, but we don't call it that because it was written by a woman and the protagonist is a woman and it's, like, centered and domestic, you know. Like, it it just it boggles my mind and then, you know, you extrapolate that out and, like, okay, it's not just about women, but it's about, you know, people who are non-white writing about non-white protagonists and I, it just goes on and on and on. And so I think sometimes we get into this space where we start criticizing things that as being less worthy or not good or not adhering to some golden standard of literature um when our like the gold standard sucks <laughs> just super limiting and like I just think it's a false
0: you yeah, know I just I agree yeah. I think it's a false standard as well um this is kind of why I don't really like speech. I don't like writing advice that says, don't do this. Mm -hmm. Never do this. You know, there are sort of acceptable, there are like quote rules that we've sort of kind of come upon that people tend to agree on things like, Oh, don't use a prologue. Well, you know what? There are plenty of books that have prologues, mine included. Um, and I was definitely one of those people who was like, I'm not really into a prologue. Um, and all those it's not that rules are meant to be broken it's just often that we say these things because people don't do them well mm-hmm. uh, and if you are able to do these you know if you are are able to break quote unquote the rules well then it doesn't really matter as long as you are able to keep people reading and a lot of books that i consider literary tend to be for me Literary fiction is oddly the most human of all fiction. It is so, sp- can't, the best, for me, the best literary fiction writers can write about human emotion and experience with such razor sharp specificity, right? That, you know, and in, in, in that specificity it becomes universal. And that's a real gift and that is very hard to do. And that, though, is very subjective, You know, what I find incredibly well written and relevant and resonant, other people may not. And some of that is, in fact, the lens in which we view things because, you know, I am not going to resonate often with a white man's point of view on things. And therefore, I'm not going to find it good Um, if you are, you know, a black woman reading, uh, right. You know, it's just you 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 bring yourself into the work as much as anything else so i I do agree with Kelly that I think these are sort of false standards to apply to a book on whether or not it's quote good all right, so let us do the next question um Hi, ladies. Love the podcast. As I begin the querying podcast uh, process, I've been contemplating my public presence on sites like Goodreads. Do you think it's appropriate for authors to review and rate books, especially ones in the genre they hope to be published in, if the review is less than stellar? What about DNF tags? Uh, DNF being did not finish. Is a three-star rating too low to keep public? I would hate for a less-than-glowing review to come back and bite me in the butt later. On the other hand, I like to catalog and rate things. Oh, yes, this...
1: Um, Oh, God. Okay, so before we get into this answer, I'm going to share an anecdote, which is that years and years and years ago, before I was an agent, before JJ was published, and we both just worked in publishing, before this podcast was a thing, we wanted an outlet to share our real book thoughts. And we contemplated, but never made a book review website that was going to be a riff on Aunt Sponge and Aunt Spiker from James and the Giant Peach, <laughs> and that we were each going to have a fake persona and be able to write what we really truly thought about books. Um, so that is to say I understand <laughs> the impulse. Um, JJ can maybe answer in more detail from a perspective as a published author and how she chooses to use Goodreads and how she chooses to review. For me, I will just say, I don't have Goodreads. I don't use it anymore. I think I had one years and years ago and it hasn't been updated in forever. Um, I don't read books. Um, I talk about books that I enjoy and I, you know, we'll talk about critical things that I see in books if I feel like I have something relevant to add to a conversation. Um, And I don't otherwise talk about books that I dislike or did not finish. I don't talk about them on this podcast. I don't talk about them on Twitter. I don't talk about them on Goodreads. Um, I talk about them in group texts to my friends. (laughs) And, you know, and that's kind of it. So I'll let JJ talk more from a perspective as a a writer. So...
0: As I was conmarining my office, I found the artwork I did for Aunt Spine oh, and Aunt Spiker. I'm so sad we
1: never made it happen. I mean, it's a very good thing now, but yeah years and years <laughs> ago when we were 20 something assistants, it was <laughs>
0: um so okay, here's the honest truth. I would advise you to remove all of your ratings and reviews. And I say this. As both an author and somebody who was an editor. Because it will come back to bite you in the butt. And it may not be detrimental to your career or anything like that. But people will know. People will have read it. People won't trust you because of it. Um, so that is a piece of cold, hard truth there. As far as my own personal Goodreads that I did once I became published, I got rid of all of my reviews. I did export them all to like an Excel spreadsheet, and you can do that for your Goodreads, but I got rid of all the text reviews, and I only put five stars up there. Like Kelly, I do not talk about books that I did not enjoy, that I did not finish, that I was sort of middling on. And this isn't necessarily censorship or anything like that but the, first of all my opinion is not important yeah but I'm also a public person um so I my opinion is one not important and two my opinions are still that it's just my own and they're private to me and I don't need to have them in public if on the other hand you want to keep a record of the books that you've read and you want to rate them. and I mean, Goodreads is very useful for that. Um, there are two things you can do. You can have a private account. You can just create one that is just locked and that's you. And you can do what you've been doing before. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, as an author, I cannot do that. I need to have a Goodreads page that I actually just never go to when I... You will learn, my dear friends, that when you are an author, that it is probably just better for your mental health to just not go to Goodreads. Just don't um,
1: do it. Just don't, don't do, do it. it.
0: And here's here's the other reason I would say to not put a three-star review uh, in public. I mean, you certainly can't. It's not to say that you can't. No one is saying that you can't do these things. I'm just advising you against it because it just does cause people to trust you less. On the other hand... You are an author and your book has been written and someone gives you a three-star review. A three-star is not a bad review by any means, but it is that curious thing where negative things stick out far more than positive things. So even if someone did give you a three-star review on your book, you're going to remember all the negative things that they've said about your book and none of the positive ones. Um, And that is why I advise you to basically just don't really use it as a personal record, You can keep a personal record on Goodreads under a private account, because these are essentially your private opinions. Like, And that's ultimately what it is. These are private opinions that I have about books. Uh, I don't use Goodreads in that way, but there is an app that I use called Bookly. It's B-O-O-K-L-Y. It is, and I I actually really like it because... um, I can record how long it takes for me. It, it it tracks other stats for me. How long it takes me to read a book. I can. It gives me sort of similar options as Goodreads. I can categorize and organize them. I can rate them. I can, you know, write up my thoughts. Um, I can highlight quotes the way that you know Goodreads will often let you do. So I use this for a personal thing. Um, and if I have an opinion that I want to share with my friends, I do that. But it's still a private opinion that I'm sharing with my friends, not a public one that I want any random person to see. And Mm -hmm. here's, this is also a topic for a separate episode about what happens when you become a public figure. You cannot live as a private person in the public space. And so these are just decisions you have to make. You can absolutely keep your Goodreads account. There's nothing stopping you you just have to understand that there may be ramifications that come with it. And that's, you know, entirely up to you. Roxanne Gay, I believe, has a Goodreads account that she reviews very honestly on. And and that's also perfectly fine, you know. It, it is a personal choice. I will say that as when I was an acquiring editor, if I saw that the author that I was trying to acquire had a public Goodreads account, And then I see them possibly trash a book that I had worked on. I'm not really going to feel that predisposed to working with this person in the future. Yeah. So, and that's just, it, it is, it's a personal thing. That's all it is. It's a personal thing. And yet it's, it's still there. So by all means, keep it if you want, just understand that there could be consequences or ramifications. I think we have one more
1: question and that's it. This is on Twitter from Tracy who says, is it safe to query another agent at an agency where you've received a rejection if it doesn't explicitly say no from one equals no from all? I'm terrified I'm going to make some terrible faux pas, even if I've checked, especially when it's a smaller agency like Red Sofa. Thanks. So, I have two answers to this. The first one is if you've checked and you can't find anything, you know, go ahead and and query. Most agencies try to be really clear about their policies on their website, so do check the guidelines. If the guidelines say don't query us, you know, if one of us has rejected you, then please follow those guidelines, but if it doesn't say anything about it, then go ahead. I know that a lot of times agents are on Twitter and we are complaining about the people who aren't doing (laughs) what our guidelines are asking you to do. And it probably puts a lot of pressure on people and makes writers feel like they have to walk on eggshells not to piss us off. And as somebody who has complained about Faux pas that have been made in my query inbox. I do just want to say that we understand that you're human and you make mistakes, and we make mistakes too. And the things that we're complaining about are either the same person who's blatantly disregarding you repeatedly. Like, I have two or three people whose names are burned into my memory, and because they will blatantly disregard everything that I said, not just once, because like once is an accident. You can be like, okay, fine. But like multiple, multiple times. I have a person who's queried me with the same project, same exact query letter, same exact everything, 19 times. <laughs> okay? This is the person that we're tweeting about when we're complaining. If you misspell my name, it's not the end of the world. Sometimes it's frustrating when everybody does it, but it's like, I am not going to reject you if you misspell my name. I'm not going to reject you, you know, for, for, little human mistakes. I have written back to writers on to give them a rejection and I've misspelled their name and I've been mortified. Like I have been there. I have been on the, you know, you hit send on the email and you've done something wrong and you just want to crawl into a hole and die. Like <laughs> where nobody is going to think poorly of you for something that is a human mistake. It's just like, if you've got a typo in your manuscript, we're not gonna reject you over that, it's, it happens. I have typos in my emails constantly. Like, we're all human, we're all doing the best that we can. If you're not one of those people who is blatantly disregarding rules repeatedly, you are not the problem. And don't worry about being the problem. <laughs> Look for the information. If you can find the information, follow it. If the information isn't there, Make a judgment call, and nobody's going to get mad at you. Nobody's going to, you know. Don't be terrified. I hate. I. I feel so bad because I know that. Yeah, um,
0: I mean, we. You are guaranteed to not be in the one percent of people that Asians are talking about publicly. Yeah, a small faux pas is not going to ruin your chances with anyone. Like, it really, isn't human mistakes, and I think. Most people are generally astute enough to differentiate what is a human mistake and what is just a flagrant disregard for rules. So, yes, I think I think you'll be okay. If if it isn't, if they don't, if a no from one is a no from all, and you accidentally send one to a different agent, so be it. That happens yeah. sometimes. It's, it's yeah. not the end of the world. It's not going to blacklist you forever. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Uh, all right. I think that's all the questions we have for now. So mm-hmm. why don't we move on? Uh, what are you working on? Oh, I can't talk about it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's that kind of publishing stuff. Um, what can I talk about? I can't talk about any of my client stuff that I've got going on right now. I can talk about um, I'm hoping to make an offer on a middle grade project. Tonight, So we'll see how that goes. It will be my first offer of 2019. So that's exciting. Um, and yeah, then just secret stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, I am still revising Guardians. I'm also actually working on another proposal that I've been talking over with my friends. But I will keep mom on the details for now. Uh, We can talk about proposals in another episode, perhaps. Um, Yeah. uh, Obviously, Suze has an amazing blog post about how to write a synopsis, but I think we can talk about uh, proposals when it comes to submissions. I think that is probably something that's pretty useful. But uh, we can table that for another discussion. Uh, Have you been reading anything? Oh, yes. I have been reading
1: the 12,000 word New Yorker article about Dan Mallory. (laughs) Dan Mallory? (laughs) It's called A Suspense Novelist's Trail of Deceptions by Ian Parker. And if you have not read this, you must. Full disclosure, I don't know who Dan Mallory is. I've never worked with him. You know, I have never met him. He's a complete stranger to me. I am fascinated with these, like, modern-day grifter stories. Like, do you remember yes. like, the, like, Anna Delvey? Um, yes. Who was, like, that girl who was pretending to be a German heiress in New York and just, like, scammed people at like, Everyone, hundreds yes. of thousands
0: of dollars. She was, like, living in a hotel or something like that. Yeah. It was incredible. And I feel it's like... like the fire documentary.
1: Been, like, the fire documentary is... It's true. I'm so... Into this, this is like major manuscript wish list. Is any if anybody out there has a book,
0: (laughs) I (laughs) want this book.
1: Um, But yeah, this Dan Mallory article is bananas. I started reading and I was just like, "Oh, this looks interesting," and I didn't know it was so long. It's like honestly, twelve thousand words. It's it's a very long piece. Yeah, so 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 long. And I was just like, I'll start reading it. I'll ha- I have like 10 minutes while my daughter's getting dressed. I don't have to drive her to school right away, whatever. And I'm like still reading and still reading. And she's like, Mom, aren't you going to take me to daycare? I'm like, yeah, in a minute. Like,
0: let me, <laughs> Hang on, hang on, hang
1: on. <laughs> let me finish this. This man is peeing in cups around the office. I need <laughs> to keep reading. So if you haven't read that, you should read it. It is fascinating. It's also
0: infuriating.
1: Yes. It's very, it's, it's enraging as a person in publishing who I, I can't, I, I, I will not, I will refrain, but it is infuriating to see this man who lied his way to this incredible, you know, position of power within this industry when there are so many talented people, um, you know, who can't get up the ladder or who are leaving the industry, you know, for their mental health. And, you know, it's just, it's, it is fascinating and infuriating. If you have not read it, it is worth the read. So definitely read it.
0: My favorite absolute favorite part of this article is uh, Sophie Hannah. <gasps> oh my God. One, she's a phenomenal author. And two, I want to be her when I grow up because <laughs> mm-hmm. first of all, this woman... The working title? <laughs> is, ...was hired to write more novels in, um, under the Agatha Christie name. Um, and she based the villain of this book on Dan Mallory, who was ostensibly her editor at the time. The working title of this book was You're So Vain You Probably Think This Poirot Is About You. And thirdly, she hired a private detective to investigate him. <laughs> And I was just like, "Man, I, I, I would like to be Sophie Hannah." She's when I grow
1: amazing. Up. She's amazing. When I worked at Writer's House, I worked in Severites, and we were part of the deal to bring her book, Little Face, to the U.S. market. And I read that book, Little Face, and I was just stunned. I'm not big into crime fiction because I'm a scaredy cat, but <laughs> she is. An incredible writer. I've read all of her books. She's and really if, great. If you haven't read Sophie Hannah, I just can't recommend her enough. But yeah, no, the shade in that was amazing.
0: <laughs> I just was like, this is amazing. This is great. Uh, <laughs> um <laughs> any books aside from this twelve thousand word article No. <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: I've been reading manuscripts, um, cause I've got some potential offers to make. So I have not read, uh, any books. Although I do just have, um, The Weight of Our Sky by Hannah. Um, oh my gosh, okay. I'm blanking. Yes. Uh, which just came out yesterday, I think, on the 5th. Uh, which I'm so excited about. Full disclosure, uh, she queried me with it. I, requested the full and I wanted to make an offer but I didn't finish in time so she got essentially a bidding war from a ton of agents and I hadn't finished reading it in time so I've read the first draft of it and it was incredible as a first draft and I am sure that the final edited polished published version is just even better so I'm so excited to read that.
0: Uh I read King of Scars um the newest Lee Bardugo book which as of this recording has Hit the number one spot on the New York Times bestseller list. I know. Uh, it is. It is. I mean, Lee is really a phenomenal writer, um, and it's. It, and also Nikolai is my husband, so I always love books about. You know, I just was like excited about that. What else? I feel like I've read other things. Oh wait, I have a list. I keep it in my bullet journal, y'all. Uh, <laughs> what else have I read? Um... Oh, I read Enchanté by Gita Trellis. Uh, that also, I think, came out on February 5th, and it is set in, revolu- in sort of like pre Revolutionary War France, um, the Court of Versailles, and it's about a girl with magical powers. I actually really love the late 18th century as a time period, um, so I always love books set in that time. And I just started, as of last night, Courting Darkness, which is the newest Robin Lefebvre's Le book. Oh, yeah. book. I don't actually know how to pronounce Robin's last name. Um, I really love the previous three in the His Fair Assassin books. They're about uh, death nuns who are assassins <laughs> in, like, Fourteenth or fifteenth century Brittany. Um, they're really great. So this is the first in a new duology in the same world, and I started that last night. I also reread *A uh, Natural History of the Senses* by Diane Ackerman, which is—it's its really kind of a collection of essays, um, sort of structured around the five senses, and this is one of my favorite books of all time. And I just would wanted. I was in the mood to reread it because I have gotten into perfumery in that I have started to try and make my own perfumes. And actually, the the smell section of the Natural History of the Senses is my favorite part. So I was rereading that. Um, so that was really great. I really feel like I have, in fact, gotten out of my reading rut, and it is so good, you guys. <laughs> it's, it's so nice to be able to be reading again and to be like in the mood to read um so yeah that's that um have do you have any off menu recommendations
1: i do so uh despite being from boston i did not watch the super bowl um because i just don't care <laughs> and, uh instead i was home alone because uh my husband took our daughter to a Super Bowl party at family's house, so I had the whole night to myself, and I had no idea what I was going to do, and I turned on Netflix, and I saw the um, new advertisement for Russian, Russian Doll
0: oh, on Netflix. Oh, there are good things
1: about that. And I knew zero. I knew absolutely nothing about it, and it's short episodes. They're like 24 to 30 minutes, um, and there's only, I think... Eight of them, so I just instead of watching the Super Bowl, I just binged the whole series. It is so good. Like I struggle to know how to talk about it because I really truly do think that the less you know going in the better. Um I didn't even know the basic premise, but anybody who watches the trailer will know what the, the premise is. It's really pretty readily apparent, and um, but I knew absolutely nothing it's so fantastic, it's so nuanced, it's so unexpected, it's funny, and it makes you think, and it makes you cry, and it's just, it's, it's like almost perfect. I have, and it's also one of those shows that's really rewarding to go back and watch because so much of it, um, you know, once you know everything that happens, like the big picture, then you can go back and start at the beginning and be like, oh, all of this stuff was planted at the very beginning. And I just didn't know that it was significant. (sighs) It's so good. Natasha Lyonne is amazing in it. It's the part that was written for her. She's fantastic. The soundtrack is great. The costumes are great. Like she stomps around New York and like these like like 80s style shoulder padded like suits with like the what's the tie that's like the string like, is it like a oh, bolo? Like the bolo tie <laughs> yeah bolo tie and in her hair is just like um, this massive curls and she's just like drunk and like inhaling cigarette after cigarette after cigarette it made me want to smoke so much um, which I didn't but it made me want to it was just I can't say enough good things about it it's so great Everybody should go watch it.
0: What about you? Awesome. That's definitely on my list. Um, so I I think I've mentioned before that I was in the process. I am almost done, in fact, conmering my entire house. Um, and it has felt so good. But it, as I've been doing it, I've been watching various things. Uh, one of the things I had been watching, which I hadn't actually, was Parts Unknown with Anthony Bourdain. Um, and it's really, really, I mean, he's always been a very good writer, so i I'm not surprised by that, but I, it is very, very good. Um, so I, I watched that and I rewatched Angels in America, oh. which, yeah. So if you guys don't know, Angels in America is a play by Tony Kushner. It is set during the mid 80s during the AIDS crisis um, and it's kind of hard to explain this play to you guys. yeah It's like six hours long by the way <laughs> like um, and the first half is called Millennium Approaches and the second half is like Petroishka or something like that. It, it's it, it's like really long and complicated um, but HBO had adapted it um, to, for, as a miniseries. I don't... A while ago now. I think several years ago. Because I remember watching it in New York City as it was airing. Um, but I hadn't seen it since then. And um, what it... So this is like the long rabbit hole of how I got to rewatching Angels in America. Was um, there is a, a YouTube uh, critic, video essayist. I really like Lindsay Ellis. And uh, one of her more... She had done a recent episode, and I can't remember now exactly. It was on um, Independence Day versus War of the Worlds, and she was kind of comparing the two. It was a very good essay. And then what popped up on the autoplay was her video essay on Rent, the musical, um, which is amazing. And uh, But she had mentioned... Other things about the the other documentaries and other things about the AIDS crisis. And she was like, "If you want to watch something else," um, and she had mentioned Angels in America. And I was like, "Oh, you know, I have HBO. I should rewatch it because I haven't seen it in years, and it is just as good as I remember it being the first time around." Um, and I keep forgetting that it's also really funny. mm mm-hmm. Like you know, because it is such dark subject matter. It you know it is. It's about the AIDS crisis and it's about, you know interpersonal relationships and death and illness and plague and all sorts of things. But it's also really funny. And I've forgotten how funny it was. And so I binged all six or so hours as I tied up my office. So that's kind of my off many recommendation, nice. which was like five rolled into one. But, you know. <laughs> I
1: remember I read that play before I saw that um, video production of it. And I was in high school and I was a theater kid in high school. So I did plays and musicals and all this stuff. And I used to read a lot of plays, Um, a lot of plays. And I was in a bookstore in Boston and I remember like the corner that I was in and the little step stool that I sat on to read that play. And it's strange because I have, I don't have sensory memories like that for every single thing I've ever read, but I do have it, you know, for certain ones. And that's the only time I've read that play. And I've only seen that production of it once. And I've never seen it live. Um, but that memory is so indelible to me. I can remember like the wood of the bookshelves and the carpet and like the way I was sitting and the smells of it. And for some reason, that's just, I remember reading that play. It's like,
0: that's like me and Arcadia oh Tom Starber play.
1: Arcadia by Tom Starber. Did you I just,
0: give you that? Or did yeah. you read it before we met? No, you gave it to me because you said that yeah. like, this would be a play that I liked. And Kelly was right. Um, I remember that because I was on the Metro North to a retreat that the corporate office, the corporate finance office I was working at the time had this like nonsense like Mm-hmm. community building day whatever and i was on the train and it was up in westchester and i um remember distinctly and i was reading arcadia and it's like the cracked leather of the seat and everything like that as i was reading uh yeah there's certain certain things like that also i really love arcadia so i highly recommend it's that one as well so <laughs> i think it's the best tom starboard play i really do it's lovely and funny yeah um, so that's another thing we should, we recommend too, is read widely and, uh, including things like plays because you can mm-hmm. learn a lot, I think, from, from how those stories are constructed in that medium. So, uh, I think that's it. Is there mm-hmm. anything, no other questions that we have this week, right? I don't think so. All right. That's all for this week. Next time we'll be talking, uh, we'll start a new series. We're calling a deep dive into children's fiction and publishing where we sort of talk about the differences between the different categories and a little bit more about the actual publishing of children's fiction. So as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Google play, or your podcast provider of choice.
1: Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the
0: podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also visit us on Patreon at Publishing Crawl and join our lovely patrons in supporting the upkeep of this podcast. We wouldn't be able to
1: do this without you. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram.
0: You can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at BookishChick on Twitter or Instagram. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Erin Bowman, author of Contagion, available now wherever books are sold.
1: If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com, send us an ask through Tumblr, or use the hashtag AskPubCrawl. Patrons also have access to a suggestion box where they can volunteer topics they would like us to discuss in future episodes.
0: Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye.